I usually start every episode with a hello to you, constant listener. And you may be in the UK, Canada, Australia, or even Belgium. But this episode, I believe constant listeners within the United States might find this episode particularly interesting. You see, in grade school all the way up through graduation, myself and others in my class were taught the basics of American history. I've always found it funny how American children are taught a meager 400 years of national history, as though Native Americans were not part of the country heritage. But we start talking about pilgrims who landed on the shores of Massachusetts and how we grew as a nation from there. But the secondary thing that I find odd about only learning 400 years is that other nations all over the world are in the thousands. For how short a period of historic significance is given to our school system, I now see a lack of detail about American histories. I know the general rule of history is that it is written by those who have won the war. But imagine how misguided that places our younger generations when philosopher George Santayana said it best, those who don't know their history are bound to repeat it. My school preached that Thomas Edison was an electric inspirational hero and not a conniving businessman who had no problem stealing others' work and taking credit. Or that we willfully ignore the fact that George Washington, America's first president, not only owned slaves, but would pull their teeth out from their skulls to use for his own set of dentures. Dark overtones of history are prevalent in every country, and I think it's important that it's discussed. George Washington's time, or the colonial era, was of great interest to me when I was a little girl. My favorite American Girl doll was Felicity Merriman. I had a matching blue dress and wore it for three Christmases until I grew too big for it. I would collect American Girl cards, read the monthly magazine, and of course, read the books. There was one book in particular that I loved from the Felicity series, Lady Margaret's Ghost. So as I sat to write this episode, thinking about patriotism during this election year and ghosts, I realized that maybe I should do an episode on colonial ghosts. Ghosts are generally associated with a pale, misting figure of a human spirit once privy to a physical body, blood, and breathing air. What I find most intriguing about ghosts is that it's a lurking reminder of what haunts. Haunting in the sense that it is difficult to forget. It lingers. It follows. It remains a constant companion to guilt. In this episode, I want to tell you more about Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, and what ghosts they have left behind. I'm Tasha Wheelhouse, and this is Copper Shock. This story is short, so I'll do my best to give it to you in as simple a manner as I can. I worked in a bistro on Spring Street in New York when I was going to college. It wasn't the best job. I mean, late nights can feel like a drag. The movie The Ring had just made a huge hit, and everyone was insane about Wells and their nightmare fuel factor. This restaurant I worked at had its very own 100% real antique New York farm well in the basement storage room. Jaden and I were wiping down tables, putting away napkins, and doing general reset after closing the doors. If we were efficient, then we could easily get out at a minimum of 30 minutes. There was one night in particular that Jaden insisted on teasing me. He had finished counting the till and called over to me. 
So tell me, have uh, you ever looked down into the well in the storage room? I felt my stomach drop a bit. That brick well gave me the creeps. I'm not sure how I could even best describe the phobia I felt just being around it. Hmm, I don't know. Maybe you should go look yourself. I have, but haven't you ever noticed that, like, stuff down there just isn't right? It's always disheveled. It is a storage room. Yeah, I know, but I mean, like, genuinely, oddly out of place. Boxes tipped over, broken glass, stuff like that. Okay. I stopped wiping down the counter to look at Jaden. When Kevin was working here, he told me that he set up his camera during one of his shifts. The tape only caught 90 minutes of footage, but the last few minutes before the tape gives out, you can see paper cuts shifting to the edge of the table and fall off. Ooh, I said with a dismissive sarcasm. The truth was, his story was getting on my nerves. A little. Want to see what I mean? Jaden then turned around to hustle downstairs. I could hear his feet hit the old wooden steps and descend downward. Come on! He called back up to me. I took a sigh and started to walk across the dining floor toward the back hall where the staircase was. I heard the wood under my feet flexing with each step, letting out a croak or a creak. As my line of sight was low enough to look over the whole room, Jaden wasn't there. Jaden, dude, stop playing around. I'm annoyed, tired, and I want to go home. I continued to walk down the steps, listening to the hum of the water heater in the corner of the room, mix and turn. Jaden, I sighed. I started to walk around the side of the well. Resting at the foot of it was a simple, dark brown apron. I knew that apron was Jaden's. I looked up the well side in front of me. I need to describe this well for you. It's not knee-high like you'll see in little kid books. This well was tall. It protruded about seven feet up from the floor where I stood. I felt an overwhelming sick feeling happening. I was sure the well was sealed off, if anything, for building safety regulations. But that doesn't mean the idiot tried to crouch inside of it and maybe the floor broke. What if he actually got himself stuck in a 200-year-old well? My breathing got faster as I stood there in palpable silence. It was so quiet. I knew I had to look into the well. Jaden. I felt my breath catch. I cleared it before calling out again. <clears throat> Jaden, are you hurt? I took three forceful steps and propped myself up onto the lip of the side of the well. My hands reached up onto the top mouth and lifted myself. 
I remember imagining what it would be like to look deep into a gaping throat of a stone well far underground, and a sick feeling began running high in my stomach. My line of sight was almost just high enough when a hand grabbed my shoulder, giving it a good squeeze. I screamed, turning toward the feeling. I let go of the tall well, falling backward, losing much of my balance. As I swung my arms wildly, I felt three of my fingernails catch and scratch across skin. Jaden bucked back, giving a yowl of pain and surprise. I took a look at Jaden. I had gotten him pretty good. Three very visible scratch marks were puffing up and lined in red across him. I remember feeling bad. I don't like hurting anyone, even if it's an accident. Oh, that hurt! He blurted out a curse under his breath, cradling his scratched arm with one of his hands. I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. You should not have played that prank. I was really worried you actually fell in. You can't fall in. Go look. I could hear it in his voice. All the fun had gone out of it now. I scrambled up the side of the red brick well again to look over. Sure enough, it was sealed and not even more than a foot in with a cement layer. It would have been impossible for Jaden to even hide inside of it. The seal is pretty high up, I said. Yeah, but it's just the huge emptiness underneath it that strikes me as pretty creepy. He continued to mutter under his breath about his hurt arm, and we both went upstairs to grab our things and lock up for the night. Before I left, I did a regular inventory check. Purse? Got it. Keys? Check. Phone? Oh no, where's my phone? I asked Jaden to please help me look for it. He tried to call it, but it was almost impossible to hear. I always left it on vibrate. Uh, I want to go home... Jaden moaned. I could tell by his demeanor that he was very over today and just wanted to leave. Just shush. I can find it. Just give me a minute. I started searching over tables and behind the counter where I sometimes placed it during my shift. Then it occurred to me. The basement. Jaden, keep calling it. I think I know where it is. He gave me a half-committal shrug. He was the one with the keys to the restaurant, so he'd have to wait for me. I started walking downstairs and looking around the floor. And there it was, the faintest sound of buzzing. My phone had to be in here. I stood still, listening to the silence and trying to zone in on where the buzzing was coming from. I looked around the side of a stack of plastic bins near the well where I had been standing. Resting on the floor was my little flip phone. I bent down to grab it, balancing myself on the side of the well to reach over the fallen plastic bins. When it was in my hand, I clicked the side button to stop the vibrating. I looked up to the back side of the well. There was a brick, just loose enough for a sliver to see inside. A brown eye looked back out at me. I stumbled back over the plastic bins and ran as fast as I could upstairs. I didn't wait to politely exit the restaurant with Jaden. I blew right past him and started pacing up the sidewalk for my usual trek home. 
I avoided the basement ever since, and frankly, I didn't work there for that much longer. Today, the restaurant is closed. The whole location has been turned into a clothing store, but that basement storage room is now open to the public. I remember curiously wondering about that section of loose brick I saw, and started looking over photos online. But now, I see that people won't be able to even look around the back like I could, because it's sealed off by drywall. I was watching a local television special a few years later, even after that point, and then I realized that was the well that they were featuring. New York is a really, really old city, and for all the modern glass buildings that sit on top, I think people forget that all of this used to be farmland. I immediately knew its shape and how tall it was, and a local documentary about haunted locations in New York told me that that well was the center of one of New York's most famous murders. Tasha Wheelhouse again. Let me tell you about the year 1799 in New York City. It's a port and countryside town. When you look in a newspaper during the turn of the century, green coffee and Havana sugar are on high trade for sale. Horse and carriages line the streets, and an advertisement for the curious asks patrons to spend a quarter of a dollar at your local tavern to see the Green Dragon, also known as the Curious Lavana. These were common items reported in the daily newspapers in December of 1799. However, American taste for newspaper headlines changed in January of 1800. Because on January 2nd, a woman's body was discovered and dredged up from the deep. Her body bloated from sitting in water for over 10 days. Her neck was purpled from strangulation, implying that she never had a chance to drown. Who was she, you may ask? A nobody, really, just some woman found dead in the Manhattan well. She was a plain woman and dated a carpenter. In fact, the night she disappeared, she told a few people she planned to secretly marry this carpenter. Guglielma Sands would become the most known name in New York City, and her death published in every newspaper. But why her? The simple carpenter she had been dating was Levi Weeks. Levi was the younger brother to the powerful Ezra Weeks. Ezra Weeks is one of New York's most famous architects. Recognized buildings of Ezra's are still standing today in New York. Buildings like the Gracie Mansion or the Hamilton Grange. Ezra Weeks was buddy-buddy to the heads of state and knew he could call upon two of America's most prolific lawyers. He wanted them to defend his poor little brother from being accused of murder. Those lawyers were Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. In the weeks leading up to the court date, Guglielma's parents publicly displayed her dead body outside of their home. They did this to stoke more public outrage for justice. Between the bad press, a body in the streets, and a seething public asking for Levi's blood, Hamilton and Burr had a steep incline to fight. Trials in 1800 were a lot more blitz and filibuster than they are today. Records show that this trial was only deliberated for three days, but that is how all trials were at this time. 
They spoke, called witnesses to the bar to testify, and testifying is not a cushy chair at the right-hand side of a judge. Oh no, you stood in a gated section that came up to your hips. As you spoke aloud to a ravenous crowd, they would shout cries of outrage at the very words you attempted to speak as testimony. Burr and Hamilton did everything in their power to slander the dead woman. They postulated that she was a drug addict, loose with men, had mental issues, suffered from suicidal thoughts, and denied Levi ever went near her when she was strangled. If she was strangled, that is. Doctors could not definitively agree if the wounds were strangulation exactly, or if she was just damaged on her way down when she fell. The trial was a whirlwind of emotion. It began on a Monday morning and went well into 1 a.m. on Tuesday. There was a recess that began again at 10 a.m. And again, this ran until 2 in the morning on Wednesday. 75 witnesses were called. The prosecuting attorney said he had been without repose and was stinking with fatigue. He had been on his feet for over 45 hours. Both sets of lawyers were so exhausted by the end of this trial at 2 a.m. on Wednesday, they mutually agreed to forego closing statements. The jury was sent off to deliberate one of the nation's most famous murder trials in its young history, a country that had been a sovereign nation for only 12 years. The jury came back after four minutes. Levi was free to go. He was acquitted. The courtroom buzzed with gossip and whispers. A Quaker woman by the name of Catherine Ring, after the verdict was announced, turned to the defendant's head counsel, Alexander Hamilton. She cried aloud to him, If thee dies a natural death, I shall think there is no justice in heaven. Hamilton, as you know, was shot to death in a duel by Aaron Burr four years later. On 129 Spring Street in New York, there is a well in the basement accessible to you that caused so much trouble. And while ghosts can come in the form of wispy apparitions, ghosts also serve to rekindle echoes of mankind. The ghosts of Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton are not representation of the men themselves. But the poor murdered woman who now haunts Spring Street in an unsolved mystery. Hello, thank you again for listening to this week's episode about the Manhattan Well Murder. Please take a moment to leave a review for Copper Shock as it helps our channel to grow, and it suggests it to other listeners who like stories like this one. I'd like to give a shout out to You Got Debs, Lucas Oaf, and B to the McG for leaving kind reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you again, and I'll see you soon.